1 Corinthians. We're going to continue in our series uh, through this book. We, this is actually, I think, the fourth message from 1 Corinthians. Really, the, the, the first two were kind of a, an introductory overview. Um, now we've gotten into the, the passages. Last week as we began this, we were looking at primarily three things that Paul talked about. He talked about our identity in Christ. He talked about all the things that we have been given, the fact that we have been given everything that we need. He has given us everything in the way of gifts and abilities and talents and all those things. He's given us those things that we need in this life to live our lives successfully for him. And that he will sustain us to the end of time and, 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 and throughout all of eternity. He will sustain us. He will keep us. And so those are the things that Paul kind of dealt with last week. And it was really a message of encouragement. We had our graduates last week, but it was a message where Paul was encouraging uh, encouraging those believers in Corinth. He was telling them who they are. He's, uh, he's assuring their identity as believers, their identity in Christ. It's not in, in a society that was all about who you knew and what you knew and what job you had and how much money you had and all these things. A society and a culture that is so much like our culture today. Paul was encouraging them that, look, who you are is, is all about who you are in Christ. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, then, then that's who you are. It's not about your job. It's not about your 401k. It's not about what you drive. It's not about any of those things. And, and our culture today, folks, it says, it does say that it, it is. It's all about, you know, being famous or being popular or, or having a lot of stuff. And boy, if I drive a nicer car, people will think more highly of me. We're, our culture just indoctrinates with that. And it's, it's all about those things. Christ says, no, no, no. As a believer, as my child, that's not what it's about. It's about, yeah, it is about who you know. And it's about that you know me. Your, your identity is in me. That's what Jesus says. And Paul encourages them in that. And then he begins, I mean, the next verse we're going to go right into beginning to deal with the problems that were in Corinth. Because as I, as I talked about in the, in, in the leading into this, Corinth is a church, probably no other letter that we're going to read is going to, going to, we're going to relate to as much as this book of 1 Corinthians. And when we see the problems that were in the church, and we're going to go right into that and deal with this. So let's read, beginning there in verse 10. He says, now I plead with you, brethren. Interesting how he comes to them. He says, I plead with you. He doesn't come demanding. He pleads with them as brethren. This is a tender moment here by Paul. He's fixing to kind of drop a hammer. He's going to deal with an issue right off the bat, but he's coming to them. I plead with you, brethren. We're brothers. We, we may have differences, but we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We share this relationship. So brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's where the connection is, is through our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, again, he, he's not just just blasting them and demanding them. He's stating the facts of what is going on there. He's speaking. He's going to speak the truth in love. Folks, if we don't speak the truth, then there's no love. Okay? If we really love somebody, we're going to speak the truth, but we don't have to do it in an authoritarian, angry, hateful way. We can do it in a very loving way, and that's what he says here. He's, again, my brethren, for it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now, that word contention, we all have an idea of what that means, but it, it, it carries the, the, the meanings of quarrel, to quarrel, to wrangle, to contend, to debate, 
there's strife and there's variance. So you get the idea that when he's talking about the contention, there is, there is fighting among the brethren here in this church. Verse 12, now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, and, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the, the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made to, of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And this is what Paul has to say here. So this week, I read, a, I read about a church split that started over an argument at a potluck dinner. And, uh, you know, so it's a Wednesday, it's a Sunday, Sunday after church dinner on the grounds. And, and uh, one lady brought this, she brought a congealed salad. You don't know what those are. You know, it's, a, it's like a jello salad or something. So she brings this congealed salad. But listen, I guess in the conversation as they talked about it, she told them that she made it with Cool Whip instead of real whipped cream. Still, she didn't, she didn't whip it up herself. Oh, oh. of all the nerve. Cool whip. And we laugh, but that's the kind of foolishness that fights and church splits start over. Is you brought a dish with cool whip? You know, that kind of stuff. Frank Martin wrote a book. It was titled War in the Pews. And he talks about shocking real life instances about church splits. And, and so churches have split over whether the piano should be on the left side of the, of the, of the podium or on the right side of the podium. They, they've argued about whether the Lord's Supper should be served from the front, front of the sanctuary to go to the back or if it should be served from the back coming to the front. Uh, boy, they really had a problem with us doing communion out in the field a couple of years ago, wouldn't they? Um, there's been fights and church splits over whether there should be a kitchen, whether a kitchen should be a part of a church. There's all kind of silliness. If you want to look at it, and I don't advise it, all kind of silliness that leads to church splits. One church even split over this. They, 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 they split over who the real pastor was. And that seems a strange thing, right? Who's the, who's the, they're debating who the pastor of the church is. But they had these two groups, and they, they each thought they had their own pastor. So they have two pastors in the church. And the two groups thought that th their guy was the guy. And both preachers got up one Sunday morning. They both got up to lead the service. And so they're talking over each other. Both led the singing. Both groups tried to out-sing the other. Then when it come time to preach, they're both up there preaching. Now this is, I'm not making this up. They both get up there. It had to be Kentucky, right? Aaron, Pastor Aaron? Had to be. It's Kentucky or Northeast Georgia, one or the other. And, and so they both get up. They both start preaching. And they're trying to out-preach the other, out-yell the other. And the congregation, they're yelling for their guy. And so this goes on and on. And finally, it just broke out in a fight. It full-on fight right there in the church, and they had to call the police to come and break it up. <laughs> True story. Now, we laugh because that's just absolute foolishness. And really, it should make us cry because that is shameful behavior anywhere. But folks in the church, that certainly shouldn't be in the church. Amen? John Calvin says, Nothing is more inconsistent in Christians than to be at variance among themselves. We should not be at odds with each other. 
Even if we have this, you know, we can be, we can have disagreements without being disagreeable. We can not agree on things and still get along with each other and, and, and not be doing the negative things. In Luke eleven seventeen, Jesus teaches us, he says, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and a house divided against itself, uh, against a house falls. And so, you know, this is also true of the church. The same thing is true of the church. Dale Moody said, I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people are divided. There's truth in that. I, I can't argue with that statement. There's truth in that. When there is division, where there is backbiting, the Lord will not work. We have to be in unity. And this was exactly the condition of the church at Corinth and why Paul now issues this call to unity. Again, he writes, Now I plead with you, there in verse 10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And as I've mentioned previously, the church at Corinth was a troubled church with many problems, and it was divided over many issues. And there are members, they were, they were members here of the same church, but they were not on the same page. They were, they were in the same building, in the same worship service, in the same small group classes, but they weren't on the same page. Each had their own little issue, their own thing, and it, was, it becomes about themselves then. Um, someone said, there can be union without unity. Y'all understand that, right? There'll be union. And they go on to say, tie two cats together by their tails and throw them over a clothesline. There you will have union, but certainly not unity. Okay? Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Church, for God to bless any church, there must be unity. And for God to bless our church, there has to be unity. Therefore, it must be protected and defended with great diligence. Amen? Boy, that was weak. Amen? Do you believe we should fight? and protect? Maybe I need to just stop now. I don't know. Uh, we've got to fight for unity. You know, there's not a lot. We're not going to have a lot of fighting in church. But the one thing we should fight for is unity. Amen? The things that divide a church, we're going to fight that. We're not going to allow those things to happen. We're not going to allow that to go on. Christ calls for the church to be bound together in unity. Listen how Jesus prayed for those who would later follow his call to salvation, sanctification, and fellowship. John 17, verse 23, he says, uh, verse 20, he says, uh, I do not... I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. One, not two, not three, not ten. One, they would be in unity. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. And if we're in Christ, then there should be unity. If we're, Christ is not divided, Christ isn't, isn't there's, there's no split personality with Christ. He is unified. He and the Father are unified. He and the Father and the Holy Spirit are unified. The three are one. And if we're in Christ, then we should be in the same unity. One, that we may be one in us, as he says, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Christ prayed for unity. He prayed for unity in the church. And so this is the unity that Paul is calling for as he deals with the issues facing the Corinthian church here. Listen again as Paul says, I plead with you, brethren, 
by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be perfectly joined together. Now, I'm going to tell you that joined together there, there's a couple of ideas with that being perfectly joined together. One is amending of fences, not not fences, but amending of nets. And, And Paul uh, Peter, you know, Peter would have understood this greatly and other disciples who had been fishermen, they would have understood this, that you get in from fishing, you got some tears in the net, you got to mend those nets. There is a, you don't want any division. You don't want any tears in the net. It's going to be unproductive. So you got to mend that back together. That's that perfectly joined together. It also carries the idea of the setting of a broken bone. It's got to be a proper set. Now understand this, when they set a bone, a broken bone, there's pain involved. Somebody, I see head shaking back there. There's pain involved with that. But, but once it's set, boom, it's like relief. It's back in place. When it's set right, then things can heal right. And that's what Paul is saying here, that, that you are to be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. So in, the, in this verse, there's three areas that the Corinthians needed to correct. They had doctrinal division, they had schisms, and they had misdirected focus. Their focus wasn't directed in the right way. So when Paul writes that you all speak the same thing, What he is saying is that we, as the body of Christ, we must agree on the essentials of our faith. Amen? Amen. Um, Everyone, every one of us must be in full agreement concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? We got to be in full agreement on that. Everyone is to share the same confession concerning who Christ is and what he has done. Every one of us must agree that the Bible is our all sufficient source for life and godliness. Amen? I mean, if, if we cannot agree that the Word of God is the Word of God, that this is, this is the direction and the guidance for our life, that this is, this is what we are to follow. If we're not in agreement on that, we're really not going to be in agreement on anything beyond that. And this is where we get all of our doctrine comes from the Word of God, not from made-up man's ideas and man's pretenses. We don't follow that. Uh, we follow the Word of God. That's why we do baptism. Word of God teaches that. That's why we do the Lord's Supper. The Word of God is very clear that we do that. We continue to do that. We're going to function as the Scriptures teach us. And you know what? If something's if we're if we're wrong in something, we need to look at that, evaluate that, search the Scriptures, and correct it. Amen. Amen. It needs to correct our thinking. Second um, Peter chapter one verse three tells us, as His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life. And godliness. The Word of God is, contains everything. Christ has given us everything. The Holy Spirit has given us everything. God has given us everything we need that pertains to life and, and godliness and salvation through the knowledge of Him who called us uh, by glory and virtue. Now, this doesn't mean that, that we must sacrifice our, our own personal identity. You know, this is not about being a group of doppelgangers where we all just look exactly alike. Um, one of the things I love about people, about society and cultures is that we're different. Everybody, everybody's different. Every story is different. I love to hear stories of how people came to faith in Christ because every story is different. What God has done in their life is different. I don't want everybody to be the same. I'm pretty boring. And if everybody were like me, it'd be real boring, real fast. Okay, so I I don't want that. I like the variety. So it's not about us all being exactly alike. We are still, we have our personal identity. And and it's not just us all looking exactly alike and walking like robots and that. It's not that. However, we must agree on the fundamental issues of our Christian faith. Amen? Amen? 
We have to be in agreement on that. We must understand that there is only one meaning to any passage of Scripture. There may be several ways that we can apply that Scripture without violating the truth of the Word, but there is one way that the Scripture can, can what it means. Um, there, there is no private interpretation of Scripture. So what does that mean? It means, it means I can't just put on Scripture what I want it to mean, what I think it means, what I would like it to mean. It, the Scriptures mean what they mean. And we have to go back and find out what the original author's intended meaning was. Why did he write it? Who did he write it to? What was he writing about? What was he dealing with? What was the Holy Spirit of God saying through that passage? Then we take that, we take the truth of that scripture, and we can apply it to multiple situations in our life. The principle is there. When we understand the principle of the scripture, then we can apply it to our lives. Sometimes folks who disagree with biblical teaching on a subject say, well, well I don't believe that. Well, that's a you problem because the word of God, you need to go back and search the scriptures and see what the word of God says. Um, well, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I, I've heard people say this. You've probably heard this. Well, I don't, I don't care what the Bible says. Well, we, we, we're not, we're not going to be in agreement then at that point, right? There's not going to be agreement. You can't have unity when there's that type of an attitude, attitude or approach to the scriptures. Or they say, that's just your interpretation. No. Go back and search the scriptures. And, and, I, and I've said it since I've been here, and I'll continue to say it. Any one of our teachers, me, anyone that stands in this pulpit, you ought to search the scriptures to make sure that what we're saying is scriptural. It's biblical. Don't just take what I say or what Raymond says or what, what Pastor Aaron comes up here and says. Don't take that as the gospel. Well, there, there's the preacher, so they, they must, they're preaching, so they, 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 they wouldn't lead us wrong. Well, we may not lead you wrong intentionally, but we may say something that's, that, that's not right. Search the scriptures because this is the authority, not me. Okay? This is the authority, the word of God. Some people seem to believe that... that uh, Everyone has the right to their own ter interpretation of Scripture, and one interpretation is just as valid as another. And sometimes when a person responds that way, they're just trying to justify their own actions, or, or they really just don't like what God's Word says about an issue. Well, I, I, you know, I don't like that. Or I don't, um, so I, they'll try to twist it, or they'll say that's not what that means, or whatever. Go back to the Scripture. Just because you don't like what a passage of Scripture means doesn't give you the right to interpret it any way you like. So if, if you are... Uh, if you are truly to grow in your faith, if you're truly to grow in your faith in the one true God, then we must accept difficult and challenging truths as revealed in Scripture. Amen? We have to go to the Scriptures. And whatever the Bible says, then that's what we live by. Unity in the church must be based on the truths of Scripture. So all that said to say this, if we're going to have unity in the church, the way we have unity in the church is that we all are relying on this as the basis of the truth. This is the truth, and this is the truth that we're standing on. This is the foundation of truth that we stand on. And so this is how we practice. So we must speak the same thing. Um, we don't have the right to twist or, or misapply any passage of Scripture. We can't take a, a verse of Scripture and make it fit our views or our opinions or our preferences. And if we're going to speak the same thing and be of the same mind and the same judgment, then we must be willing to adjust our opinions and our worldview to be in line with the gospel. Amen? Uh, there, there, folks, too many professing Christians in Bible-believing and Bible-teaching churches still have a secular worldview rather than a biblical worldview. 
We'll, we'll hear it. We'll hear it where, where the scriptures are very clear on an issue and someone will have a very secular, a very worldly approach to an issue. And, and it's, that's having a secular worldview. When we see the world through the secular, through the temporal, through the temporary, through the, instead of through the Bible, we have to look at the world. It's, it's the old, you know, the, the, you, you, I don't want rose-colored glasses, okay? I want to look through Bible glasses, I want to look through scriptural lenses. I want to see the world and everything in it through the lens of scripture. Everything we see, it's as though we look at it through the scriptures. What does the Bible say about that? Well, I don't like that. I don't, I don't like that because the Bible takes this approach. That's where we have to allow the scriptures to change our worldview. The word of God should change the way we think about ourselves and about life and about everything else about this world. It should change that. It should affect that. We need to hold to a biblical worldview. And that will help us to learn and to think and to act biblically 24-7. That, that way we're always, if, if, if we're thinking with a biblical worldview, everything we do, we're thinking through the lens of Scripture. Uh, I read a line in a, from a song this week and it says, Your actions will follow your thoughts around. Oh, that's a pretty, that's a pretty good line. Your actions will follow your thoughts around. See, the Bible will shape and mold your thoughts. This is our foundation truth right here. When we go to the Word, when we, when we rely on the Word, that changes our thoughts, which in turn then shapes and molds our actions. The way we act is, is going to be driven by the way we think, and the way we think is driven by the Word of God. If I'm never in the Word of God, then I'm going to be, I'm going to be skewed by what I'm, I'm listening to, what I'm watching, who I'm hanging out with, what I'm, what I'm hearing in the culture. That's going to skew me if I'm not in the Word of God, if I'm not listening to, reading, applying, believing the Word of God and allowing this to define how I see the world. Paul continues, he says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you. So the word translated in our Bibles as divisions or contentions is a Greek word, the Greek word schismata. And it's derived, it's what we get the word schism from. And a schism is, it refers to divisions or rifts or factions or breakups. And it is the antithesis of unity. If we're talking about unity, the opposite of that are schisms. When we have schisms in the church, we've got breaks in the church. We've got tears in the church. We've got division in the church. We've got contention in the church. When we want unity, if we have schism, we have the opposite, the exact opposite of unity. The Corinthian church developed a party spirit. It was, it was they had their groups, they had their cliques, they had their parties going on. They're not like political parties, but yes, they were like political parties. So there's these parties and they were divided and they were quarreling with each other rather than living in harmony. And so Lifeway, there's a, there was some research by Lifeway and it said 25% of former senior pastors who left the ministry before retirement age left because of, what, what do you think? Divisions. 25% of pastors who left ministry early, they left because of church conflict. Now, I'm going to tell you, uh, we haven't had a lot of conflict here. I praise God for that. Amen. I praise God for that. We, don't, we, have, we have four years, I'm in my fifth year here now, we have not had a lot of conflict. But I could see where a lot of conflict would make somebody go, I don't care what you pay me. I don't care what else is going on. This ain't worth it. This ain't worth it. 
I mean, everything we do, it's a fight. Everything. I've been in churches where everything was a fight. The business meeting, everything was a fight. Now, I've joked about toilet paper, but it really isn't a joke. Folks will get mad because you've got a white cloud instead of Charmin. And, 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 and then want to nitpick every nickel and dime. Well, well you, whatever. It gets crazy. Church conflict, and it wears on people. And it's not just pastors. You know, there are a lot of pews. There are a lot of empty pews in churches uh, today because of conflict. And there was a fight, and it wasn't handled biblically, and somebody's gone. And, and it may be that the one's gone right or wrong. They might have been right, but they just, I'm not going to fight. And, and the person sitting here is going, I handled it right. I didn't leave. And your heart's just as dirty as, as anything. So what are some of the most common types of church conflict? Well, there's power struggles. That's a big one. There's conflict between the pastors and the deacons or, or, or church leaders or members of, of, of some clique within the church vying for position or power or voice. Um, so there's power struggles. That's a big one. Then there's music preferences and disagreements between musicians and, and the choir. Sometimes that would be a, a, a problem over the style of, of worship music or who gets to play what instrument or who got to play a solo or who selected to lead uh, the, a song. Those, those are a lot of fights. I've I, I never heard that fight here. I've not heard that fight here. But there are complaints. There's another part of that with music is complaints about the style of music. And, and, and usually that's because my preference is more important than anything else. Right? Correct. All right. So the way music ought to be done ought to be the way I want it done. Doesn't matter if it's God honoring. Doesn't matter the style. What matters is it's not my preference. So that's one that gets a lot of people. Family feuds. Uh, I think all the families here have killed each other that we had the problems with, so we don't have that problem here. Uh, I think they're all gone. I think all that's done. No, I don't know. That, that's, a, that's a big problem in a lot of churches, and that's where you end up with one family in the church. There's 12 people there, and they're all, they're all related. Uh, family feuds. Money, whether, whether, uh, whether it's who gives or how much they give or the pastor's salary or, or who should be on the payroll or how much money should be spent or, or, even, or even how often the pastor preaches on money. You know, those are all things that create conflict in the church with money. Personality clashes. You know, some people, I understand this. I, I, I fully understand this. Some people are just not going to like. There are personalities you don't like. There are people going to come in here and be nothing that y'all do, but there'll be something with me they just won't like. That's okay. I, I'm, I've, I've, I've come to that realization that not everybody's going to like me as much as I want them to. As much as I'd like everybody to like me, I know they're not. And it may be the way I stand. It may be the way that I wear blue jeans some Sundays. It may be the fact that, that I didn't wear blue jeans on Sunday. It, it could be that yeah, I, you, you, know, you can preach better if you wear blue jeans. Um, or you'll preach better if you got a suit on. Um, we can get into those things. And, and some people may not like the personality of the pastor. May not like the personality of the pastor's wife, Gina. I've heard a lot of that. I've heard a lot of that. Y'all don't even know if Gina's got a personality. She's so quiet. She never causes any trouble except at home. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. 
Jesse, is he looking? No. Okay. <laughs> May just be somebody else in the church they don't like. But, but there's personality things that create problems. And James tells us the root of the reason for these conflicts. In James 4, he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Where do these fights come from? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? So it's about what you want, you know? So your lust, you lust and you don't have. So you want something, but you don't have it. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. You know what God says? When we ask according to his will, he answers answers that prayer. Problem is, we ask, we ask all these things. If we bother to ask, we're asking wrong. And that's what he's saying here is you, you don't have because you don't ask. But then, but then when you do ask, you're asking for the wrong reasons because you want what you want. You know, it's the old, you know, I want what I want. I, w- I want what I want. We all want what we want because we're all just sin-filled and selfish people. Amen? We got to submit that to the Lord and let that be surrendered to Him and not be driven by the me, me, me's, but be driven by Him, Him, Him. Right? That's what we need to be driven by. So that's where the conflict comes from, is from sin. It's our own flesh. It's we wanting what we want. Someone said, well, said, we are not to be church consumers. It is not about our wants and desires, preferences and opinions. We are here to worship Christ corporately and to be discipled and to help make disciples. So maybe we should rethink our offenses, our problems, our differences. Puts it in pretty good perspective. One of the key things that causes the breakdown in the church unity is a lack of church discipline. And I've talked about, I've talked about this recently, probably more on Wednesday nights, I think. But there's, there's a lack of church discipline. And sadly, most churches that I'm familiar with have no process for church discipline. And, or, or, or they have a process in place, in theory, but they've never really exercised it. And, and, and it's, it, 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 it really creates a problem with unity in the church. Jesus described the steps for church discipline in Matthew 18. He says, starting in verse 15, he says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Not, not very high esteem right there. But, but you hear there's a process there. There was a process of four steps right there for someone. If there's sin and someone addresses that sin, that problem, whatever it is, and they, 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 I don't want to hear it. You take someone else, two or three, so they can hear it all. They hear the matter. They deal with it, and they see, nope, he's not responding. They take it to the church. Now they won't respond to the church. This is obstinance, folks. It's a resistance. It's flesh. It is our culture today. It's our culture today. That's the way it should be handled. Don Randall Cox, uh, in a dissertation to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he wrote this. He said, to de- the, the decline of church discipline is perhaps the most visible failure of the contemporary church. No longer concerned with maintaining purity of confession or lifestyle, the contemporary church sees itself as a voluntary association of autonomous members with minimal moral accountability to God, much less to each other. That's the problem. We want to say we're the body of Christ, but we want to do it the way we want to do it, 
how we want to do it, when we want to do it, where we want to do it. We want it to be about us. It's not, about, it's not really about Scripture. It's not about the Bible. It's not about what's right or true. And you shouldn't say a thing to me. I told our church Wednesday night. We, I don't know how many are in here. Count, have you counted, Kevin? What's counting here this morning? 147. So what I'd say this morning, there's 147, and what I know is if everybody that's associated with our church attended on one Sunday morning, we'd blow the doors off. There's a, there, I see the list every week. If you, if you miss church, you're not here, and it's not like we're, we're babysitting you or whatever. We want to know because we don't want you to slip through the gap, and, and, and all of a sudden you've been gone for a month, and we didn't even know it. We want to watch that. But I know this. We've got over 200 people that are in our circle. So if everybody shows up on any one given Sunday, we're, we're going to blow the doors off. If we get really consistent with attendance, it's going to get thick in here. Y'all okay with that? Yeah. Need to scooch over, don't we? We're going to scooch over. Somebody's going to sit up here on the front. We got some, the Anabaptists are sitting up front here. We got all the Baptists <laughs> back there. These are the Anabaptists up here. But we, we, we gotta, we, we're going to have to scoot over and get tight. But here's where I, where, where I wanted to say about that. I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm fallible. I'm, I'm just, what, what has somebody said? Men at their best are just men. A man at his best is just a man. I'm just a man. Now, I seek God. I want to live for God. I want to be right with him. But, but I, I've said this many times. I don't take this approach of, well, oh, I'd, I'd never do that. I'd ne- I won't do that. I, I told Gina a long time ago, I'd never tell her, I'll never have an affair. My heart's desire is that I'd never fail her and I'd never fail this church. I told y'all Wednesday night, I, would, I, I prayed to God he'd strike me dead. He'd strike me dead before he let me fall into an affair. If God sees that's coming, take me out. I'd rather y'all honor me and say, boy, he was a good man. He, he loved the Lord. He served him with his whole life. And man, he, he finished strong. Finished suddenly, but he finished strong. I'd much rather that than the disgrace of, man, I can't believe that. I just can't believe that. And, and that's happened again and again and again in my life. I've got friends that I wish I would prefer, I'm not God, but I would prefer to have gone to a funeral than go through what we went through because of a spiritual fall. And the fallout on that is catastrophic. So here's what I'm saying. 147 of you in here this morning, y'all should be looking out for me. And if you see a weakness in the chink, you see a weakness in me, you should, you should help me with that. You may come and say something. I, I, always, I always preface with this. Be careful how you approach people. You know, you, you can say the same thing a nice way and you can say it a harsh way. But try to, try to be gentle with people when you come to say something. But come, and you know what? You may confront me with something and I go, man, you're crazy. Hey, that, ain't, that ain't right. Preacher, you're, you're a little stubborn. Ain't no way. I ain't stubborn. You're a little obstinate too. I am not obstinate. I don't care. You've said that 20 times. I'm not obstinate. You know, that kind of stuff. But listen, I do. I, because 147 of you should be a wingman and a wingwoman for me. You should be watching and looking out for your pastor. And you should be doing that for the people in your circle and your friends. And you see somebody slipping away. Look, we should do that because we love them. Amen. Don't, don't let something happen and then you go, well, I saw it coming. Then it's, then it's going to be on you too. We've got to look out for each other. Theologian John Owen taught that the church has a duty and obligation 
to administer biblical church discipline to those who obstinately persist in sin despite both private and public admonition and who disrupt the peace and unity of the church. We have an obligation to that. So folks, we, we've, we've got to speak the truth in love. We've got, to, we've got to speak the truth in love. That's got to happen. And uh, you know, I, I think our church, we've, we've administered, y'all, this church administered some church discipline before I got here. And I was thankful for it. It, it, was, it, was, it was comforting to me to see the leadership step up in a very difficult situation and deal with it. And not just say, well, we'll wait till we get a pastor and we'll let him deal with it. They dealt with it. That's leadership. And that's biblical leadership. And that's what we need to do. That will strengthen our church. And it brings unity. So Paul tells the church that, that they must maintain unity by agreeing together on the essentials, avoiding divisions, and, pain, and maintaining the right focus. He says that they were to be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Church, uh, I tell you this morning, we are, if we are to have or we have to have the same mindset, and that mindset has to be the mind of Christ. If we're going to have unity in this church, we have to have a biblical Christ mindset, right? So we're encouraged to focus on the same purpose and goal, focusing on Christ and keeping uh, or in seeking to bring Him glory. That should be what we're trying to do. We should be focused on Him and bringing Him glory. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." That was the mindset of Christ, and that's the mindset we should have. That mindset right there. We should be humble. We should, be, we should have the mind of Christ and all these things. He humbled himself even to death on the cross. Man, if we all have that humility, we can't do anything but have peace and unity and harmony in this church. But look at what the Corinthian believers were, were about. As Paul writes, each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, who is Peter, or I am of Christ. And the church had been blessed, and they had been exposed to many gifted preachers. They had been, they, you know, we've, been, we've been blessed in some ways. We've had some good preachers come through here. We have good preachers here. Pastor Aaron does a great job. Uh, Raymond does a great job. You're, not, you're, you're probably gaining when I'm not here. They're, they're, you're blessed. We've had uh, Glenn Rogers here. We've had other preachers that fill this pulpit. We're blessed to hear a lot of different guys. We've been blessed. They were blessed with great gifted teaching and preaching. And when there's gifted preachers and there's gifted teachers and gifted workers, they're a blessing from God and they ought to be appreciated and, and, and encouraged. But the problem of the Corinthian church is that the Corinthians were focusing on and giving their allegiances to either Paul or Apollos or Cephas. And, and so their focus was on people. It wasn't on the cross. Their focus was on style, not on the message. These men were all speaking the same message. So it wasn't like, well, Paul's message is different from Peter and Paul's is different from Apollos. No, they're saying the same thing. These men were in unity. 
But they didn't like, you know, so they're watching the style. It became stylistic. It became about popularity or whatever. Well, we just like the way he dresses or we like the way he looks or he, he just sounds like he's smarter. Um, they were emphasizing the messengers instead of the message. And their attention was on personalities and not the person of Christ. The church was divided into four cliques. And there were four cliques or factions or schisms here. And each group had their own mantra. And it was based on the person that each chose to follow. And they they were, they were guilty of following men, and they were guilty of hero worship. That's what was going on. And it led to strife in the church. So there was the, when you talk about parties, there was the loyalist party. They followed Paul. See, Paul founded the church. He led many of them to Christ. He discipled a lot of them. He was a simple, straightforward preacher, and a lot of them followed Paul. But then there, were, there was the intellectual party that followed Apollos. And see, he was an Alexandrian Jew, and he was known for his culture and his eloquence. And, and he was a man of philosophy and rhetoric. So the intellectuals would have followed him. They, he appeared to be, to be more educated, and so the more educated in the church maybe followed Apollos. And then there were those who belonged to the traditional party, and they would have followed Peter or Cephas. And you know, Peter was one of the original 12 disciples. And he was a leader in the church there in Jerusalem. Peter was still partial to the forms and ceremonies of Judaism. And so it would have given it more of a formal, traditional, or ceremonial look to the Christian faith. So those of the traditional party, they follow Peter. And then, then of course, there's the fourth group that formed the exclusive party. See, so they were the exclusive bunch. Now, you read that in Scripture and you think, well, those, that group there, they were just they were doing right. That was the right group because we just followed Jesus. But that's not what was going on. They, they, they were referred to, um, that, see, what they did is they refused to follow any of the other three. And, and they, they claimed that they just, we, we, we just follow Jesus. We don't follow Paul or Peter or Apollos. We only follow Jesus. You see what that is? See, they were, they were this super pious group. They were the group that they, they displayed a spirit of self-righteousness and smugness and it, and it separated them from the rest of the church because they were the holier than thou. They had it all figured out. And these folks often claim to have a hotline with God and they give off this superior attitude, this presence. These are the folks that sometimes could be intimidating to others because they, they would lead with, you know, the Lord has told me. The Lord has told me, God, God spoke to me in my prayer closet this morning and told me. And it's, so this, it's, that, it's that arrogance. It's a, that, that they were saying they're only following Jesus, but they were being arrogant in their, in their faith and in their walk. And so these groups were all wrong because they, in, they, they, they included people who agreed with them and excluded people who did not. And that's the body of believers and they had created these little pockets and cliques and groups and parties within the local church there. And so Paul corrects their thinking by focusing their attention back to Christ and the cross. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul says, Paul can't save you. He says, Peter can't forgive your sin. Paulus cannot give you a new heart. And no denomination or church can make you a child of God. Only Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross can accomplish these things. And not only is there no place in the church for cliques, but there is also no place for any attitude of superiority, self-righteousness, 
or listen, divisiveness. Divisiveness. Now listen, if I go to you and I'm complaining about something, or I'm criticizing something, that's sin, folks. Because it's divisive. If I'm trying to get you on my side, because I don't like that. That's what they're, you know, you hear what they're talking about doing? You're trying to create division. And it's sin. We have to be careful, folks. We have to be careful. We can get in a conversation and slide right into sin really quick and, and, and break up unity. All those who are part of the family of God are sinners who came to Christ and have been washed in His blood. So we have no right. We have no right and we have no righteousness of our own. There is no righteousness in me. Our focus, our life must be about glorifying Jesus Christ. That's what our life should be about. As a church, we are called to be unified in Christ. Amen? Amen. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, he says, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not on, uh, only on your own interest, but also on the interest of others. We can only do, what, uh, do that when we take our eyes off of ourselves, and we get our eyes off of others and we get our eyes back where they belong on Jesus Christ. That's where our eyes need to be, solely on the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, Pastor Aaron, you and the team can come forward. This morning, the question I would have is a simple one. Why are we here? Why are we here? Why do we gather together? Why are we here on Sunday morning? Why do we gather on Wednesday night? What, what is it about? Is it about me and what I want? Or is it, is it to focus on Christ, which it should be? Is it to focus on Christ and to make much of Him? That's what it should be. Is it to focus on Christ and make much of Him and to grow as His disciples? That's what it should be. And then it should be about making much of Christ, focusing on Him and making much of Him and growing as His disciples, but then helping to make disciples. That's why we're here. That's what the focus should be. And we must be united in this. Amen? Amen.